This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. How do you think about Kirsten Cinema's place in the cinematic universe of the U.S. Capitol right now? Senator Kirsten Cinema is at the center of the universe in the U.S. Capitol right now. <laughs> Amanda Becker covers Washington for the 19th, thinks a lot about the characters in power, how they got there. When she says Senator Cinema is at the center of the universe in the U.S. Capitol, she means it literally. Like, if you think about politicians on an ideological spectrum, this Arizona senator would be smack dab in the middle. And that means... Her and Joe Manchin from West Virginia are kind of pivotal to every single thing that the Biden administration and Democrats would like to accomplish. Politics aside, Senator Cinema definitely stands out. She's been known to wear thigh-high boots to legislative sessions. During COVID, she covered up her overgrown roots with lavender and turquoise wigs. But you get a sense of her power when you see the way the White House puts her front and center. When President Biden was trying to iron out an infrastructure bill and racing to announce he had a deal, Senator Cinema was standing by his side. Amanda says the thing about these crucial moments, though, is you might see Kirsten Cinema but you will rarely hear from her. She's kind of a black box right now in terms of what will she get on board with? What won't she get on board with? Yeah, it's funny to me because Kristen Cinema is hard to ignore. She's often dressed in like an attention-getting way, but then you don't ever really seem to know what it all means. Yeah, and she hasn't always been like this. She used to, you know, when she was in the state house give a lot more floor speeches, for example. She used to be a lot more accessible to members of the press who were covering her, whether it was as a lawmaker during one of her campaigns. A few years back, Senator Cinema was a regular on MSNBC. She gave a TED Talk. She seemed to relish the spotlight. But now, Amanda puts it this way, Kirsten Cinema doesn't feel the need to explain herself. She has chosen to kind of pull herself out of the public conversation now that she's been in the Senate, um, despite playing this pivotal role. So while she gets headlines for her, you know, her clothing and her wigs, you know, her colorful wigs, you know, people are kind of left wondering what she's thinking on a lot of things. Today on the show, what's Kirsten Cinema's deal? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. 
That means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Can we talk a little bit about how we got here with Kirsten Cinema? I think if many people know her, they they know her as the senator from Arizona. They may know that she got a lot of attention for being one of the first openly bisexual members of the Senate, and I believe Congress as well. But can you go back further than that and just explain how she got into politics in the first place? Yeah. So um, Senator Cinema was born in the Tucson area in the mid seventies. Her family was kind of a solidly started out as a solidly middle class family. Her dad started to run into kind of work and money troubles during the 1980s recession. She's talked about how their car was repossessed at one point um, and their house kind of dipped in and out of foreclosure. Uh, Her parents ended up splitting up. Her mom remarried and her stepfather was from this tiny town on the uh, Florida panhandle called Defuniac Springs, Florida. They ended up moving to that small town when she was elementary school age, I believe. And for a time, they really relied on the generosity of both family and the Mormon church in order to kind of get by. I mean, for they were living in her stepfather's parents' piece of property that had an abandoned gas station on it. And she characterized it as homeless, basically. She did. So in her that became a huge uh, kind of thing in her Senate bid that she had said she knows what it, what it's like to be homeless. And it became this uh, kind of back and forth about what qualifies as homeless. Did the gas station really not have plumbing, like she said? I mean, by all accounts, the gas station was not a normal home. It was not designed or retrofitted to be inhabited by a family with children. So in that sense, she was she did not have a typical home. And her campaign at the time pointed out that in Arizona, the definition of homelessness it would include, you know, residing in a structure not built for um, human habitation. How did she get back to Arizona? College after college, she moved back to Arizona. So they were in they were in Florida, and um, she graduated early. She, um, you know, at this time they were kind of getting food and financial assistance from uh, leaders in the Mormon Church. She graduated early from high school went to BYU. Brigham and Young. Yeah. Graduated early there as well um, and moved back to the Arizona area where she became a social worker because she had this, she has this beloved aunt who was a social worker. And so she decided she would move back to the Phoenix area and uh, she was a school social worker for six or seven years. Um, She got her master's in social work and she just started to become really frustrated during this period of time that she wasn't able to have a bigger impact. Um, A friend said to her, you should go to law school, consider politics. Uh, So she did. She got a law degree from Arizona State and uh, she became an an attorney and started, you know, getting more and more involved in politics. And that's kind of the, the beginning of her political career. But she wasn't always in Democratic politics. Like initially, she was affiliated with the Green Party and was an independent And it's interesting because there's this letter she wrote in 2002 to the Arizona Republic where it's like a diatribe against capitalism, the kind of thing that I couldn't imagine Senator Sinema writing 
now. She basically talks about how, you know, until everyone realizes that the wealthy are in control, the almighty dollar will continue to rule. It's it's not subtle stuff. No, she was not. That was not a subtle period of her, of her political career. I mean, she was, <laughs> as you said, she was in the Green Party. Um, she ran for local office a couple times and um, lost miserably. She worked on Ralph Nader's 2000 presidential campaign. She eventually, the first time she ran for the House, I believe, was, uh, yeah, as an independent affiliated with the Arizona Green Party. She finished last. She got less than 10 percent of the vote. Um, So, you know, she eventually subsequently switched to um, a Democratic ticket affiliation and won her first state house seat in 2004. But, you know, for the years preceding that, she was pretty far out there. And, you know, she was an anti-war protester. She had a lot of opinions that she stated publicly about Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, She did not tone it down at all in those early years in politics, but she also didn't see many political victories during that time period. Yeah, (laughs) she's pretty honest about this. Like she's been quoted saying, you know, in that first run for the state house in Arizona, she was an independent. And here's the thing. You can't win that way. But I didn't know that. And so she re-registered as a Democrat and the next election she won. Which to me, it's like sort of the first realization that I need to moderate a little bit. Yeah. And at that point, you know, it was simply just saying she was the member of a party, one of the major two parties. But that evolution continued. So she essentially has written about how her first year in the Arizona State House was a complete waste. She didn't get anything done. She talks about how she gave these kind of fiery floor speeches and was kind of this uh, Bernie Sanders type figure in the Arizona State House that was heavily Republican. And she was completely ineffectual in her own telling. And so after that first year, she kind of did some self-examination and decided that she wanted to befriend people on the other side in order to get things done, that that was the only way to achieve kind of lasting political wins. Over time, befriending people across the aisle became core to cinema's political self-mythology. She would give these speeches about it. The picture we see of politics today is rancorous and partisan and ugly. That is an accurate picture, but it doesn't have to be. The truth is... When we this is that TED Talk cinema gave after serving seven years in the Arizona state legislature. In order for politics to work for people in this country... We can no longer divide and conquer. We must unite and conquer. Thank you. In the stories she tells about her time in the state capitol, she likes to point out how she got on Republicans' level, appealing to their values and principles to get them to vote with her. But Amanda says that with the benefit of hindsight, a lot of cinema's favorite political victories, they weren't all they were cracked up to be. One that's really big looming in her mind from, you know, what she's written about it and the interview she's done on it was when she was in the state house and she was part of a coalition uh, that defeated a ballot proposition that would have prohibited same-sex marriage by adding that to the state constitution. Now, same-sex marriage was already prohibited in Arizona at this time. Um, This would have prohibited adding it to the actual constitution. 
Um, now, eventually, this was, you know, null and voided by a Supreme Court decision a few years later. But at this time, um, she talks about how she, by the way that they decided to frame the issue, which is they actually used um, older heterosexual couples who were living together um, in terms of, you know, framing this kind of as a domestic partner benefits issue. She was able to get more conservative Republicans on her side. Now, this upset some LGBTQ activists at the time who thought this should be framed as a right or wrong. Um, you either support the, the rights of the LGBTQ community or you don't. And we shouldn't have to couch it in, you know, making a heterosexual couple kind of the face of this. But that victory was short-lived. They, the state eventually did approve this in a ballot proposition. The same thing happened for another coalition she worked with to prevent another ballot proposition from being on the ballot that would have banned affirmative action. So Senator Sinema's whole argument for the importance of bipartisanship is that you need bipartisanship to create lasting change, durable change, so you don't leave constituents swinging back and forth and, you know, law and policy, you know, going back and forth in this confusing, wild way, depending on who's in power. But two of the examples that she's written about the most were changes that didn't last. It wasn't until Democrats seized control of the White House and the Senate this January that questions started bubbling up about what exactly cinema's bipartisanship was all about. The first time she caught heat was a couple months back. The Senate was scheduled to vote about whether President Biden's stimulus bill was going to include a measure increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, it was expected kind of that no Republicans were going to go along with this. Many Democrats were also wild cards, including some Democrats who support raising the minimum wage, as Senator Sinema does, because they had a procedural objection to kind of tacking it on to this larger stimulus package. Because, you know, it has sunset provisions and a variety of other things. You know, they just didn't feel it was the right way to go about this. So plenty of people were thinking they were going to vote against this. Yes. But Kirsten Cinema did it with panache. She did. And she, you know, she had said before the vote that she opposed this. So she comes into the Senate chamber to cast her vote um, on the inclusion of this minimum wage hike. And she walks up to where they record the votes and she does a thumbs down. Which is usual. Which is normal in the Senate, especially with masks on. You know, people use that a lot. Senators do to just get their vote recorded. But uh, then she curtsied. She did kind of this dip. Now, what you could see on camera was just her curtsying in front of the staffers recording her vote and then... You know, she talked to a couple Republicans on her way out of the chamber. And how did commentators react when they saw this? The backlash was swift. So, you know, Representative Mark Pocan, uh, um, he's from Wisconsin, a Wisconsin Democrat. He wrote on Twitter, just wow, um, <laughs> linking to a post about her previous support for raising the minimum wage. Um, Rashida Tlaib, a Michigan Democrat, uh, wrote on Twitter, no one should ever be this happy to vote against uplifting people out of poverty. So this was really seen by a lot of progressive Democrats as kind of an F you 
that not only was she not going to vote to include it, but the way she did it was kind of rubbing salt in the wounds of working people and the lawmakers who wanted to get this done. But when you reported it out, was it that? No. So she got a lot of flack, you know, in media reports as well for this, both nationally and in her hometown paper. When I started reporting it out, because I was already working on a profile of her at this time, I was told by multiple people, and the more people I asked, the more people confirmed it, was that what you couldn't see is that right off camera, there were um, nonpartisan Senate staffers. So these are staffers who work for the Senate, not for one party or not for one lawmaker. They had had to stay up all night the night before reading the bill. And it was hundreds of pages of long, so they'd been there all night. Earlier that day, Senator Sinema had brought them a cake, and uh, they were thanking her for it as she voted. And so her curtsy, she was looking at them beyond, you know, the staffer that was recording the votes as they thanked her, and she curtsied as a as a response to them, a gesture of, you know, acknowledging their thanks. Now, the really puzzling part to me was why her office, or she herself, wouldn't have just said that at the time. Uh, the only thing her office did say about it was they told the Huffington Post that it was essentially sexist to talk about a woman's body language. They, they told the Huffington Post, quote, commentary about a female senator's body language, clothing, or physical demeanor does not belong in a serious media outlet. So what do you make of that? I mean, like, do you think... Kirsten Cinema staff saw this like almost as an opportunity, like she's riled up these progressives and she can kind of use that politically in Arizona, which is a very purple state. Or are we just looking at her wrong? I'm just curious what you made of it. I mean, I don't think her staff went kind of off script in any way in their response to that. If anything, I think they were trying to clean it up to the extent that they could probably given some limitations. You know, congressional staffs rarely go rogue. Uh, they usually are carrying out the wishes of the lawmaker that they're working for. I think that she really, I mean, the title I put on the story that I wrote about hers, Cinema uh, doesn't feel the need to explain herself. And I just, I really don't think that she feels that she does. Now, I question whether that's a, a good decision for someone in politics. But I don't feel as though she feels she needs to answer to people on the progressive side of politics right now. She sees herself as having put together a winning coalition that included a lot of Republicans and crossover and independent voters. There's a, a lot of independent voters in Arizona. And she views that as why she won, which in Arizona just five years ago, a Democrat winning a Senate seat was a bit of a political coup. Now, I think things have changed even since then. So I think it remains to be seen whether her calculation is correct, that that is the only group of people she should be focused on in her coalition. When we come back, is Senator Sinema's commitment to bipartisanship a winning strategy in the Senate or back home? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. 
Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Last month, Senator Cinema offered a few more clues about her approach to bipartisanship when she authored an op-ed in The Washington Post defending the filibuster. Like her colleague, Joe Manchin, Cinema thinks of the filibuster as a way to preserve civil debate in the upper chamber. She says by making sure no bill can pass without 60 votes, there's an incentive for both parties to work together, and legislation is less likely to swing back and forth as one party or another takes power. This is a take that rankles her progressive colleagues. Does anyone know what Senator Cinema actually believes? Because like, other than friendship across the aisle, like what does she stand for? So I, after talking to many people um, kind of in her orbit, a couple dozen, including some people who are, are pretty close friends with her to this day, I am told that she has not changed kind of her core beliefs, that they haven't shifted all that much. She just sees... So she still wants to burn down capitalism? You know, I'm not sure it extends that far. I think they're more talking about kind of her latter state house days than her Green Party, uh, you know, anti-war activist Ralph Nader days. But she believes deeply in food security issues and stuff like that. She believes deeply in supporting the military. She has members of her family who are in the military. She believes uh, very strongly in voter rights. I had a couple people tell me that if there was anything that would get her to change her mind on the filibuster. It would be if she came to the realization or the conclusion that Republicans were truly going to make sure that nothing got through on protecting the right to vote, that she, that might be the one thing that would change her mind on the filibuster. But HR1 just failed. It did. She was, a, she was an original co-sponsor though, and she voted for it. Um, it just... They said if, but that she, wasn't enough. if she was going to change her mind on the filibuster and potentially there could be some other compromise they could reach on voting legislation. These people told me that if there was anything that would get her to change the filibuster, it would be if she was convinced that Republicans just truly were going to obstruct anything on voting. But she's not convinced of that yet. Apparently not, because she just wrote an op-ed right ahead of that vote on protecting the filibuster. But... You know, beyond that, I don't think that she seems to have changed her core beliefs on anything, according to the people closest to her. It's just she feels as though she was elected to represent a group of voters who skew moderate to conservative, whether that will be the same profile of voters she deals with, um, you know, going forward, that is TBD. Yeah, that, that was what I was going to ask, like, is that still true, though? Because I, I wonder a little bit if, if Kirsten Cinema is doing what her voters want or what she thinks they want based on a previous understanding of who they are. 
when I went and talked to voters in Arizona, liberal leaning voters who were ecstatic to elect the first Democrat to a Senate seat in a long while in 2018, who, uh, you know, worked really hard on her behalf. Uh, they're fed up. And more than one of them told me, you know, we can't, she doesn't return our calls. Sometimes we don't even know, they don't even know how to get a hold of her or someone on her staff. Um, she won't meet with kind of a lot of the progressive groups. Meanwhile, she's meeting with a lot of industry groups and other kind of more moderate or conservative leaning uh, organizations. Um, and they told me, you know, we're not going to put the same human power into her next campaign. And if that means she loses, then so be it. But they think that there could be a credible primary challenger. And while, you know, Senator Sinema might not see these people as the ones who put her over the edge and got her her victory, they were certainly the ones making phone calls, you know, doing lit drops, going door to door. And they tell me that they just are not willing to do that a second time around. And if she faces a challenge from someone else who's well known in the state, um, I think that she could have a really rough primary in 2024. It's funny because if you read or listen to Kirsten Cinema, it's clear that she thinks of herself as a deal maker. But I sort of wonder, like, do you think about her as a deal maker or an obstructionist? I think that she bases that view of herself on perhaps an outdated political dynamic and climate that has shifted. Uh, this year is the first year in Kirsten Cinema's political career that she has been a member of the party in control. I mean, her party controlled the House before when she was in the U.S. House, but, you know, uh, Republicans had the Senate and the White House, so it effectively didn't really matter. Uh, when she was in the State House, Republicans usually were in control with a supermajority. So in that context, her, you know, commitment to reaching across the aisle did make her a dealmaker. Now, I think that she is viewed by her own party as potentially being and playing the role of an obstructionist as they try and get key pieces of legislation passed, either because she has not announced she's on board in terms of, you know, some pieces of legislation, such as a, a labor bill, um, or because she is one of the most vocal opponents on the Democratic side of changing the filibuster. You know, the person who would be the real deal maker right now would be the Republican version of a Kirsten Cinema. Because by even putting herself in the role as dealmaker, that kind of, to a certain extent, makes her also a de facto um, obstructionist of the Democratic agenda because she's not automatically on board. Hmm. It's funny to me that Kristen Sinema kind of needed the Democratic Party to get into politics. Like, she just couldn't get elected without them. Like, she said it herself. And now she's in this funny situation where the larger party needs her, but she seems to be pushing back. It's a funny flip to me. Maybe it's not a flip at all. I mean, maybe she doesn't feel like at the end of the day, she answers to the Democratic Party. She started out as not a Democrat, um, and it just has never become a, you know, a pivotal point of discussion until now because Democrats have not been in power until now. Amanda Becker, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Amanda Becker is the Washington correspondent for the 19th. And that 
is our show. What Next is produced by Davis Land, Daniel Hewitt, Carmel Del Shad, Elena Schwartz, and Mary Wilson. Big thanks to Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict for helping us do what we do every single day. And I'm Mary Harris. Tomorrow, stay tuned to this feed. What Next TBD is going to be here with Lizzie O'Leary. She will be dissecting the Pentagon's UFO report. Stay tuned because the truth is out there. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.